Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Awesome. Hello, everyone. This is episode 36 of the Petronos Podcast. Welcome, everyone. Um, I am really honored today to have a good friend of mine, Tatiana Matrova, on the podcast today. This is episode 36. Today is Friday, January 14, 2022. She is being awesome and recording in a time zone that is not quite as favorable to her as it is to me because it's 11 a.m. here in um, here in Colorado. Um, WTI, just to put this in front, WTI is pushing 83.87. We're nearly pushing $84 a barrel on WTI. Brent is nearly $86 a barrel. And natural gas in the U.S., Henry Hub, is $420. Um, so I always like to bring into the podcast with that perspective. But today we are going to talk about Russia um, because Tatiana Mitrova is um, an expert on this, on, on Russian oil and gas production. She is a professor at the Skolkovo Business School. She is affiliate with Oxford Institute for Energy Studies, of which I am also an affiliate. Um, she works with Columbia University as well, and she's also on the board of Schlumberger and Novatech. So she is a wealth of knowledge. Um, she is uh, extremely intelligent, and I met her and we're both dating ourselves. I met you in, I think, at the Russian embassy like 10 years ago um, when we were, Eprink was doing an event at the Russian embassy. It was super fun. And Tatiana has always been um, very, very knowledgeable and very kind. And she explains this in a, in a framework that people can understand. So given all of that, uh, we're going to jump into it. Um, and um, hello, Tatiana. How are you? Hello, Trisha. Thank you so much for this invitation and really glad to see you after several years of isolation, at least virtually. Absolutely. We will, we will do it in person very soon. When things are opened up, I'm, I will, I'll head over your way and, and we will, we will enjoy some sunshine and chat in Europe. Um, so I, I know that we have a ton of topics, your wealth of knowledge, you know, this stuff really well. I think I want to frame this and obviously people know, um, or, or if they don't know, there's, you know, Russia is amassing troops on the Ukrainian border. There Russia's in talks with, um, with the U S and other Western players um, about this troop buildup on the Ukrainian border. And the reason this is sort of relevant is because Russia also helps out Kazakhstan on and both Ukraine and cause uh, the energy is in a in a critical fold in this right now, especially in Europe, given the energy crisis we're seeing. Um, and I, I was talking about it on my previous podcast, but I mean, both the UK and Germany are, the utility sectors are, are doing very poorly. They have extremely high energy prices. Natural gas is a big component of that. And particularly for Germany, um, the, the gas that's flowing into Germany, the gas that's flowing into Europe. I, I don't know if listeners have a completely, you know, none of us probably have a complete deep understanding of how much gas actually flows from Russia into Europe, you know, what's really going on in the context of an energy crisis standpoint. Um, and I mean, we have Nord Stream, we have Nord Stream 2 that is built, but it, I, there is no gas flowing through it um, because the Germans have not approved that. So, and I think, you know, that's one big topic that I would like to discuss is just those natural gas flows. And, you know, Russia produces 10.8 million barrels per day or that's what that's what OPEC is showing for for that and Russia is a member of OPEC plus um, but I think it's very impressive and, and folks probably don't realize just how resilient Russian production has really been you know to, to easily produce over 10 million barrels a day consistently um, you know everybody says well Russia's not super flexible in production I've never really thought that I mean they, they seem to be relatively flexible especially in the last several years um, in the midst of sanctions and I know part of that's because they have Russia does have a lower break even uh, for production and has a different tax structure that's really 
benefited the ability for these companies to produce more crude oil. Um, so I would like to talk about that sort of production, how much it is. Um, and that's in the context we know that Saudi Arabia is producing 10 million, roughly about 10 million barrels per day. Now the U.S. is producing 11 and a half million barrels per day. And Russia produces obviously a ton of gas. Um, and those, I mean, the U.S. is producing 93, it's what, 93.4 BCF a day. So 93.4 billion cubic feet per day, exporting 11 BCF a day via pipeline, 9 BCF a day or about 10 BCF a day via pipe. Um, so massive numbers in terms of what the U.S., Saudi, and Russia is a part of as this, this third largest player. Um, so those are some of the major issues I'd like to get in. You're, by, but you're welcome to interrupt. You're welcome to add other topics. But with that, I'd say um, let's jump in Where, wherever you would like to jump in. What, what topic would you like to pick up first? Okay, maybe I will start, Tricia, with a very brief overview of the role of Russia on the global air energy arena, because uh, people normally underestimate that this country with just 3% of global GDP and just 2% of the global population is actually producing 11% of the global primary energy. 5% it is consuming domestically despite rather low uh, population, and 6% it is exporting. So this is a huge number, and it includes oil, gas, coal, a little bit of electricity. Uh, so basically, it's about fossil fuels. And here, indeed, uh, Russia is competing with uh, Saudi Arabia and the US in terms of number one in oil production. And there were periods of time when Russia was actually leading for a short period, but uh, we, we have these examples. So normally the production is fluctuating between uh, 10 and 11 something million barrels per day. Uh, and it, uh, it used to be number one in terms of natural gas production. Uh, the U.S. shale revolution made the U.S. number one, but Russia is still uh, leading in natural gas exports. So here, so far, the volumes that, first of all, Gazprom through, through the pipeline system is exporting to Europe and to China, they are the highest in the world. So it's uh, uh, impossible to underestimate uh, the role that Russia is playing with all these massive flows uh, to the external markets. And, uh, you know, with oil, uh, we are exporting two thirds of all the production. With gas, we are exporting one third because the country's energy balance is primarily relying on natural gas. Just for your understanding. So can, you put, can you put volumes to that? Just rough volumes, um, just for the listeners. I mean, I I think the EAA puts that that basically the EAA is putting consumption for Russia at five and a half or five point two million barrels per day in twenty nineteen, and that I thought that number actually was seemed pretty high from an oil standpoint. That that they were putting consumption at about at half of that production. So 5.2 million barrels per day. And then gas, it was putting, um, I, I didn't have an accurate gas figure. I was curious on what the total production, what rough or total production, consumption and exports are sort of on the gas side. So uh, you see, uh, the, there is difference in the metrics. We normally yes. use billion cubic meters. So uh, it's 660 BCM natural gas okay. production. Yeah, and it is uh, approximately 200 BCM, de depending on the year of what we are exporting. And there is this distribution. Key part is uh, supplied to Europe. 
and growing volumes are now also going to Asia through power of Siberia pipeline and also as LNG. So it is all shifting, it is all changing, but uh, it's necessary to understand uh, that the country is really extremely important, especially on the European market, which is creating lots of these geopolitical discussions and pressure uh, because, well, at least uh, when it comes to gas, Russia has really huge market power and we can see it now in the European market quite clearly. So going to the European gas crisis, definitely something which is on the uh, newspapers and everybody is discussing. It's an amazing situation, I would say. And it came quite unexpected uh, for everybody after this enormous uh, decline in demand and in prices in 2020 due to COVID. Uh, just to remind you, the prices uh, for gas in Europe, they were uh, below $2 per MBTU in summer 2020. And all the producers, especially Russia, were enormously suffering because they had to supply below their operational costs. Yeah, not long term costs, but short term. No, and that's costs. a great. It's a great point because I don't think a lot of people appreciate that how low those prices were and how this sort of evolved. And it definitely that was a really really painful time for all gas producers, but particularly for Russia exporting gas into Europe. Yeah, and uh, Russia had uh, Gazprom, first of all, it had to dramatically reduce its output because all the underground storages were full and there was no place where to put this gas. So then the problem is, in the end of 2020, underground storages uh, in Europe, in Russia, everything is filled in. And people are expecting that COVID is still there and 2021 will be the next year of low demand and low prices, right? So what is their logics? They are not investing in drilling, which makes a lot of sense. But then suddenly this uh, post-COVID or mid-COVID recovery started to go much faster than expected. So there, there was cold winter, both in Europe and in Russia. Uh, suddenly, Russian domestic consumption rose much more than people were thinking. Uh, it was uh, more than 5% growth, which is higher than 15-year uh, average level. And this, so, is, this is early 2021, when we were also seeing... Yeah very high prices, a very cold winter in Asia where we're seeing price spikes in China and Asia. And they were pulling on this LNG and we saw these correlating, we saw these price spikes in Europe, but people weren't really paying attention to it in the context of this, is, this could be sustained and we could see this again in the summer and fall. Exactly. And at the same time, uh, both producers and traders, they were still thinking that the market is oversupplied and they were not sending additional gas to the underground storages because they didn't want to put additional pressure on the prices in Europe, which were already quite low in the previous summer. So actually, Gazprom was drying up its storages in Europe. It was not investing in the upstream production. And it was also using its underground storages in Russia to supply Russian customers, again, without additional investments in the upstream drilling, because it has just reduced these investments in 2020. But then the summer of 2021 came and it was getting more and more clear that actually demand keeps growing, both in Asia and in Europe. 
and in Russia, which was even most surprising. Um, there were several factors. Uh, actually, as uh, with the with the uh, gas uh, market conjuncture, uh, it's a patchwork of different uh, events here and there. Uh, nuclear outages, uh, higher prices for coal, which is pulling coal uh, to the export market, except uh, in, instead of being burned on the uh, thermal uh, coal plants inside Russia. And it all resulted in higher than expected gas demand domestically. But Gazprom was still not investing in the additional production. They were thinking that it's just a temporary event. And that was how we came to the beginning of uh, August 2021, when there was a major uh, accident in uh, Yamal region. There was a fire on the largest gas processing, primary gas processing plant, yeah, or which actually has stopped supplies to the export market uh, to, for a couple of weeks. Which and that was the Yamal up... G, the Arctic um, export no, no, facility? No, 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 no. It, it was the pipeline. It okay. was Gazprom facility, okay. which is preparing gas for the pipeline transportation. It's just purification uh, of gas. Right, but so and that gas exported. is going, that gas is being consumed in Russia and being exported as well. And exported through pipeline system to Europe, yeah. And uh, at the same time, European authorities and customers started to realize that, God, we do not have sufficient gas volumes in the underground storages. It is already August, just the time when normally uh, companies start to pump gas in for the next heating season, but there is no gas coming. Yeah, And that was the beginning of this price growth. Yeah. Gazprom said, look guys, we have first to fill in Russian underground storages and we suddenly face huge demand inside Russia. So we have to fill in more than normal. So therefore we are reducing our nominations through the, uh, through Yamal Europe, through Ukraine. Yeah. Which immediately has resulted into the panic on the market and rising prices, which was also for the benefit of all gas producers, Gazprom being the first of them. Yeah. So this strategy of giving messages to the market, keeping in line with all the con contractual obligations. So here Gazprom was very, very cautious. Uh, they were supply supplying everything that they were supposed to, according to the, the long required contracts. volumes, which were probably yep. The required volume is probably significantly less, obviously, than yeah, the actual but volumes. Sport they volumes but uh, additional supplies, which they were practicing through so-called electronic trading platform, which they have established, it's like a quasi-sport market under the auspice of Gazprom. Yeah, they, they basically stopped selling gas there. Yeah, And uh, European customers started to fill it immediately. They were expecting that Gazprom, as usual, will, you know, demonstrate this goodwill as it always did. Uh, Gazprom was a sort of Saudi Arabia uh, for a European gas market, providing seasonal flexibility. So if there was lack of LNG or any problems with the European indigenous gas production or anything else, uh, Gazprom was always keen to earn additional money to increase export right. volumes and to supply some, some in addition. 
But here the situation has changed. And I suppose that there were two factors. First of all, purely technological. In 2020 and first half of 2021, Gazprom was simply not investing uh, additional money into the upstream production. Yeah? And of course, this uh, sharp decline in 2020, when you are uh, operating in permafrost with all the flooding and with all the geological difficulties, it comes at a cost. You're losing part of the resources. Yeah, you cannot simply switch it on, switch it off without some damage for the reservoir. So here there was definitely this influence as well. And so um, th there was this technological component, but there was also and still is increasingly uh, this, um, you know, game with the market. Yeah. How and do you think affect Right. I think that, I mean, and this is where I'd, I'd like to unpack that there's a, several things. I mean, you, you've, you've given us a wealth of knowledge um, um, and very impressive, especially the way you lay it out and break it down. I think, you know, there are a couple things I want to make sure we come back to is that um, is the Siberia pipeline. I want to loop back a little bit to China and, and, and things with that it later. Um, but on the upstream, the oil and gas side of the, the not investing. So the not investing in the, in the production side. I mean, I think it's, uh, that that piece, I think, probably for Europe is a little bit tricky to know. You know, we know that Gazprom dropped the volumes, and EIA has actually shown that in the data of the the storage volumes within Europe for Gazprom storage volumes have have dropped. And and I do think that um, <clears throat> I don't know how much you followed BBC or other commentary in color on the UK and sort of German gas situation. This was sort of in September and evolving in October. And you know, they it was it's been very hard for them to give real credible coverage of this because. Many Europeans don't want to admit that they have relied very hard on renewables. And so something that happened, it was, yes, we, we've had a lack of natural gas. And we've seen natural gas price spikes. But the reason we've had a lack of natural gas is because it wasn't just that Russian volumes dropped. It was that that demand growth in, in energy grew. Um, and it was also that at the same time, especially in September, there was less sun there was less wind and there was less um, rain. And same thing was happening within China when we saw these price spikes and we saw this demand on coal and the crazy coal spikes and everything. This was a global energy crisis. And a lot of it had to do with this, you know, China has a ton of hydropower, um, more hydropower than anybody in the entire world. And so when you don't have enough rain and you're drawing that on, then they're drawing down on coal and then every incremental move, then they're pulling gas and, you know, LNG, I mean, Europe is the marginal gas consumer for LNG. So, I mean, they're kind of left just holding the bag and there's no gas left. And I think a lot of people may not really appreciate that just the renewable side for the UK. I mean, they had they have tons of generation capacity. They've added capacity on wind and solar, but they had the, the least... Uh, um, Capacity-wise, they're fine. The actual generation of renewable power was the lowest it's been since 2017 in the in the third quarter of this year, um, and it's a huge deal because that's what's also happening in Europe. And, and this is the same time where they're adding lots of wind and solar, and it's a scary aspect to the grid of this reliability. Um, and you have utility providers going at, under left, right, and center. So you've had over 30 providers go under in the UK. You've having a lot of struggling in Germany, and this is where it's really fascinating from the geopolitical standpoint. Is that you know if if I am Putin um, or if I'm Russia, this is a uh, I do have a lot of leverage here because um, I'm it's not that I, this whole gas thing was necessarily intentional. There's lots of technical things, but I'm now in a position that, you know, the, the Germany really needs the gas. Ukraine really needs the gas. Europe really needs the gas. And, you know, I have a lot of flexibility. Um, and, you know, the Western powers are perceived to be pretty weak right now. I mean, when when your whole priorities are renewable energy, 
you, that's that takes a lot of money and a lot of focus. It actually impacts interest rates and the ability what the European Central Bank is doing on interest rates. And the U.S. I think there's probably perceived weakness with a with the Biden administration for a number of different reasons. So just as a kind of it seems like an opportune time for Russia to just say yes, maybe we're not going to send as much gas to Europe. And maybe we'll put some troops on the border or whatever it is, you know, and we'll do this things together because, you know, what are you going to do about it? Well, all this plus add to that um, the fact that if you are thinking in even without any geopolitical environment, forget about it. Jump just from the purely commercial profit maximization. It makes a lot of sense to keep slightly lower levels at yes. much higher price. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, and that's it. Plus, add to that, uh, you've mentioned already some of the reasons uh, not related to Russia, but which have affected, which have created this crisis in Europe. Yeah, because frankly, in my understanding, it's unfair to blame only Russia for these high prices. It's a coincidence of many, many factors. Some of them are climate related, like these droughts or no wind, no sunshine. I mean, the climate is changing. Here we are. Yeah. And the lack of storage capacity for gas, I think, is a really big yeah. deal in Europe. But the reason I bring it up, especially in the context of the climate stuff, is because it's diff- the the sort of I would say it's 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 a socialist and almost almost a it's a very deeply embedded thing in Europe to move on this renew on the energy transition. They're going to do it, whether it bankrupts their countries or not. And I I personally think it's going to come at very very high cost to the consumers to heating, to health. And and really, I think it, be, it is going to bankrupt some countries in Europe. And because these trillion dollar price tags, multiple trillions are very expensive. But gas storage in Europe is something people, they, I mean, Germany and Ukraine and many countries have always relied on this little bit of bump from Gazprom when they need it because they pull it pull into it. And the UK relied on it from offshore, right? They never really stored it. So Europe has not done a great job over the past several years, especially because they're so focused on renewables, is that thinking about natural gas storage is not something that they focus on because they would just pull it from like the North Sea. Well, if production is declining in the North Sea, if you're not maintaining your production, very similar to what you're explaining in Russia of not investing in it, that's what the, the UK has not did not invest in it over two years. They had lots of COVID maintenance. And then when they needed it, it wasn't there. And that's and then they had to they had to import coal from Russia and they had to import um, gas and everything. So these were just these factors or something, I think, really critical to think about in the context of how Europe is, you know, leaning into the the renewable side and the context of how this works with hydrocarbons. And a lot of folks spend a lot of time working on the renewable side, but and that's their bread and butter and they understand it, but they don't understand it in the context of hydrocarbons and geopolitics and, and when you need that. And if you've been it, reliant on a pipeline system and then it's not there, what do you do? And that's put them in a very precarious situation that you know, is not is not solely just geopolitical. This is this is a unique energy crisis in Europe that they've they've had a big hand in creating themselves. Yeah, here I would completely agree with you because uh, there are indeed some like objective factors out of control, which we cannot predict. But there were lots of factors which were absolutely predictable. Ten years back, we were discussing that, look, indigenous production of gas in Europe is declining in the Northern Sea, in Netherlands, elsewhere. All the fields are mature. And they, they will, will have to phase them out. So the region, which is increasingly relying on imported gas, 
which doesn't have sufficient storage capacities and which is liberalizing its market in a way to rely mainly on the short-term contracts, logically it will be exposed to much higher price volatility. It's like by definition, you cannot avoid it. Yeah. Then add to that, you phase out nuclear which is providing base load for electricity, but some of the countries like Germany just decided it is regulatory decision. Yeah. Yep. Basically, and 2010 it, onward, Fukushima nuclear is gone. Exactly. And that, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, this uh, uh, January, actually, German nuclear generation has halved. Yep. Yeah, because they are phasing out because they have a plan and they have to follow this plan. They cannot wait until the end of the heating season right now when the prices are enormously high because it is the state strategy. Yeah. Then add to that coal fade out because of the environmental constraints and again because of the regulatory decisions on the state level yeah and they've tried they haven't done you know i think europe as a whole and i I look at it from the bp energy statistics and you can break down the percentages i mean the uk has phased out coal dramatically it's almost nothing they have have quite a bit of natural gas in the grid which is that that really is the problematic piece of if you don't have enough natural gas ready for when your renewables drop. And that's that's what happened in September and October is they didn't have it ready and they it was available. When it makes up over 27, around 27% of your grid, you got to have it because you're going to need it at times because the wind, solar, and hydro, just it, it's subject to the environment and, and subject to weather. And I think Germany, they're still 25% coal. The grid is, it's coal and wind. It's a really unique grid, but they have not. Um, and I always point this out because they... Europe tends to brag so much on on how well they've done on the renewable side, but when you phase out nuclear um, and you and Europe has a massive coal constituency in the north uh, in the northeast part of their country where it provides several thousand jobs, um, they've never been able to get rid of them. They have I think it's three three coal mines or so, it, maybe six coal mines, several coal mines. They've not been able to get rid of these. They provide several thousand jobs and they still produce a lot of coal that they use within their country and it provides a lot of power. So it's jobs, it's power, and really now I think it's it's, it's a fascinating piece of whether you love or hate coal. The energy security is extremely important to just having reliable energy, right? Having reliable power and having enough to to back up that if you're not producing that gas yourself and you're pulling on it, I think it's going to be hard for a lot of constituents within Germany to just say, yeah, let's just get rid of that coal, especially when their utility providers are about to go under and they have the highest electricity bills in the world. Um, that just doesn't seem, and it's sort of portrayed, I think, in the news and media, like they'll just eat it. And I think from a policy side, the folks in Europe, definitely, like I said, they believe in climate change, you're going to progress with this. You know, in the US, we're, we have, a, the Biden administration has a has a, a, a climate change plan, you know, that they enacted in January 2021 within executive order 14008. And since then, you know, getting the grid to be um, fully clean and, and having these, uh, having emissions and, and by 2035, basically, it's extremely aggressive measures to put a lot of solar and wind into the grid. And we're seeing exactly of the cases, you can look up the data for Germany and the UK of sort of what not to do from a reliability standpoint. And it's sort of fascinating that this is still progressing um, in this way. But I do think this is a bit of a come to Jesus moment for a lot of folks, and especially for energy prices. It really comes to the point of, are people... Are people turning up the thermostat in the cold weather when they need to? And I read something from the European Central Bank is that a good portion of Europeans have said that they aren't. 
um, that they are no longer heating their homes adequately because of energy prices. And that's got to be something I don't know in Russia that, you know, when you're when Russia's prioritizing filling gas storage in Russia and heat, Russia is cold in the winter, as you know, I mean, it's really important to have adequate heating and adequate power. And of course, they're going to make sure that they have that gas first um, and that they have that cold. And I, I only bring this back to us because I would like to touch a little bit on on Russia and climate change and what they are actually doing versus what they're saying. Um, and I think energy security is a big component of that. But with that, I will, you know, jump back in and, and tell me, pick up wherever, you know, you want to from there. Okay, so we've discussed how controversial is this path of energy transition. And uh, I would completely agree with you that the crisis in Europe is to a large extent handmade. And it's a very good lesson for the rest of the world to learn not, what not to do uh, with the energy transition and to uh, take some wisdom uh, thinking how better to structure this transition. Indeed, it is necessary, but it has to be well prepared and not put uh, the poorest part of the population at risk because at the end of the day, these are the poorest people who are not switching on heating in their houses during this winter time, right? Uh, and it is also a question of just transition, yeah. And we have to have it in mind as well. Uh, but um, basically, uh, you've mentioned the um, attitude of Russia towards energy transition, and I would say that initially it used to be extremely skeptical and critical. As a fossil fuel country, Russia just couldn't accept this ideology. Why the hell should you refuse from oil and gas, which are so nice, so flexible, so convenient, so reliable, and go to renewables with their very unclear utilization rates and these huge required backup capacity and so on and so forth. I think now the perception is changing and renewables are being developed in Russia as well. Well, we have like 10 gigawatt of solar and wind, but we have huge hydropower capacity inherited from the Soviet time. And uh, there are very interesting discussions on hydrogen, on electricity storage, and so on. So uh, it is becoming popular. There is a, a bit of a hype about uh, around it. Uh, there are new documents and very, you know, loud strategies announced. Uh, uh, Russia has it's announced still... net zero by 2060. It's so uh, that's why I can't, and I don't mean to poke poke fun at it, but I it's it's a. Uh... You know, I mean, Russia is, and I say this a lot about Saudi Arabia, like as a point blank, if I'm, if I'm advising and analyzing people, I mean, Russia and Saudi Arabia are going to say whatever they need to and check the boxes and write the reports and do whatever. But don't kid yourselves that they're going to invest as much, they're going to continue to invest and they're going to continue to produce oil and gas and supply it to the, to the rest of the world as long as it's being consumed. And something I think the International Energy Agency, um, many, many uh, things I like to poke at the International Energy Agency. But one is that mid last year when they put out their price forecasts, um, and I think we've talked about this before, but they put out these price forecasts. And part of it was when they first did the net net zero 2050 thing report, they put out these price forecasts. And I think it was like, I think the the price target for 2021, and we were in the middle of 2021. So like the oil price target was $37 a barrel. And, and we're all like, well, hello, we're here. So 
one, prices are not that low. And then the trajectory was sort of like out years was $35 a barrel. And their logic, everyone's logic is that, well, prices will just be so low and um, because demand won't be there. And I thought, if prices are that low, people are going to drink the damn stuff. I mean, this will be burned in everything. It will be used. It will be used for power. It will have the opposite effect they all want um, for carbon emissions, if indeed it is actually about decarbonization, which I'm not quite sure it is anymore. But it's not going to do that because if prices are low, it will be consumed. It will be consumed internally at length for everything. There will be power switching. Um, and I just think half of the world, you know, whether it's the, it'll Russia could say whatever they want. Saudis can say whatever they want, but it will be consumed within the Middle East. I think it will be consumed um, within Russia. I think it will be consumed in Asian countries as well, because it's just going to be cheap. Um, I don't actually think it's going to be that cheap, but the logic, that's the logic premise. Um, and, you know, Oxford Institute for Energy Studies put out a big report in um, one of the first energy transition things in it was uh, fall of 2020, and it echoed a lot of those themes, too, of that prices will decline and everybody will just sort of move off of it, and and Russia will start making hydrogen, and so will Saudi, and it will be just great. Everybody will be, you know, we can make the hydrogen and we won't be reliant. And it's, it was a very ro- rosy pictures to paint geopolitically that this will just all work out. Everybody will stop consuming oil and gas, and that's not actually what we're seeing. Clearly, 2021 was case in point of the increase in demand for energy, and in the U.S., we saw record gasoline demand in July of this year. We saw um, over 10 million barrels a day of gasoline demand. And this is in a country where you would think if you flip on the TV and listen to CNN or Fox even, um, or, or Bloomberg or CNBC, that you would assume the energy demand is declining because we're switching all to renewables and we're plugging in our cars. But gasoline demand was at all-time highs. And oil demand for the U.S. was at 23 million barrels per day in December, which is that it, these are record figures. So this is all happening in the in the context of the so-called energy transition, which I say is I think is a lot of rhetoric and hype. And I real I, I say that and ask that because that's what I'm curious about in Russia is that you know are is this something that's thought about like we lean into this to the degree that we could probably get outside investment and help. Do, would it help with sanctions? Are there a number of things that could benefit Russia to say we sort of lean in here? And I say this in the context because China has done a very very good job of saying they're, you know, reducing emissions and doing all this stuff while they're not doing that um, so that they can get a massive buy-in from the United Nations. Um, and they can, the the Belt and Road Initiative ha- is now called the Green Belt and Road Initiative. And uh, the UN has endorsed it with sustainability goals and everything. And so I think that there's lots of benefits to say this stuff, doing it it is very, very different. And and I think the, you know, we we will see it in the actual CO2 emissions data, which are, are trending up, not down, um, that it's not really necessarily coming to fruition. Yeah, I agree with you. And I would uh, say that in Russia, it looks much more as, uh, you know, nice declarations rather than real intention to reduce emissions or to switch from fossil fuels to renewables. But there is also a second component, which is uh, to a large extent geopolitically driven. It's about technologies to get uh, to localize these technologies which are getting more and more advanced i mean all green technologies because the world is moving there and if we are lagging far behind it will be really very difficult to make it up uh, in the future so in this respect yes indeed there is state support for the renewables and there will be state support for the hydrogen technologies especially given that russia inherited from the Soviet times some really nice hydrogen technologies. So mm-hmm. uh, there is this technological component and technological race yeah, 
in China, by the way, as well. Yeah, it is Absolutely. an important part of the whole energy transition discussion, which is not really that uh, clear uh, to many no, observers. But, you know, th there is another consideration which really frightens me that actually, um, OK, let's imagine uh, oil prices are indeed at $35 per barrel. Yeah, nobody is investing except for Russia, Saudi Arabia, because our break-evens are below that, maybe some other producers here and there. But what we will see very quickly, and what we are observing right now, if there is still at least slightly higher demand than this production at $35 per barrel, the prices will go up. But the oil and gas industry it is very inertial you cannot increase you cannot rebalance this market in a couple of days couple of weeks or couple of months it is several years because you have to go for the field development you have to make massive upstream investments you have to sustain infrastructure actually if you look more in detail on what were the reasons of uh, lng shortages in 2020 2021 you will see that there were lots of problems with maintenance uh, and there was a the different locations there were and COVID. i think right there were covid and that's something that the uk cited and if you were if you just try to piecemeal this stuff from Europe together. There was so much maintenance offshore um, on the gas side. There was so much, so much maintenance on LNG, on everything, the timing of the maintenance. And they had kicked off maintenance because of 2020 and then they were doing it in 2021. And so the timing was just off for a lot of things. Um, but, you know, I, I want to bring this back to, so you bring up something and we, we need to loop back to this of the, the cost of production, right? That, what does it actually cost? And in Russia, this is something I brought up in the beginning. I don't think the average listener really does understand how, you know, it is, it's not, I always say in Saudi Arabia, compared to the U.S., you stick straw on the ground and oil comes up. And, and I know that sounds really simple, but it, it's not nearly as difficult in Saudi Arabia or Russia as it is in the U.S. However, Russia did a really good job in terms of production in the years of, you know, sanctions were slapped on Russia. People thought, you know, the country certainly from an economic standpoint was hurt. I, I, um, I, the Russian economy, and you can speak to this and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's been relatively resilient because the tax structure was shifted and more production was allowed to be produced at lower price levels because the government sort of took pit, but also Russia has a lower break even. And the economy is not, not quite the same as Saudi Arabia is that when people say the fiscal break even, you know, the Saudi government needs $80 a barrel um, and lots of countries within, you know, within the Middle East and Africa need that those dollars. Russia doesn't need that. I mean, and that's because the economy, while sometimes a little simple, it is a little bit simpler of a kind, but it is in some ways more diversified. You have a domestic economy. It is unique in a lot of ways, um, but it does mean that you do, your fiscal break even is lower. And I, I'm not sure people, and it, this comes back to, you know, some leverage I think that Russia has at this time to say, um, and I'm not saying this is a good thing at all. I'm just saying there, there is some kind of leverage to take an opportune moment of saying, okay, well, you need the gas and, you know, I would like to do something and we haven't done anything also mass these troops on the border and, and there's a unique position of leverage. What exactly Putin wants to gain from it? We're not entirely sure what the end goal is with it, um, but it means that it's opportunistic timing. And I think that this, the, the ability to have a lower fiscal break even is part of the leverage that Russia's had to be able to easily maintain around 11 million barrels per day of production for the last several years and sort of flex with that. So I just like your thoughts on that, of that, 
the st- that stability in production and the ability to do it at a lower cost structure and what that's like in Russia. Yeah, so first of all, for your understanding, if you compare different resource-rich countries, you will see that Russia probably has one of the most diversified economies. So the whole share of oil and gas sector in the GDP is less than 20%. Compare it to Saudi Arabia, to Venezuela, that's a big difference. Yeah. Uh, Then Russia has this floating uh, rubble exchange rate, which Mm -hmm. actually allows to devaluate rubble when it is needed. All the domestic costs are rubble nominated and there are uh, most of the technologies are produced uh, domestically. So therefore, the prices for oil go down, rubble goes down, you still have the same break even. You are not that dependent. You do not need $80 per barrel. Yeah, Basically, you can adjust uh, and your uh, revenues uh, for the budget, they are in rubble and they are spent in rubble, yeah, which allows for much bigger financial flexibility uh, for the country. Then Russia has quite a unique uh, taxation system, uh, which is actually... So the companies basically have the same uh, level of revenues, whatever the oil price is. When oil price goes above, uh, I don't know, $80 per barrel, the companies get like 25 When oil price goes down to 27 the companies still get their 25 It is the state which is either increasing or reducing its take. But for the companies, the situation is pretty stable. And of course, they do not benefit from the periods of high oil prices. That's a pity for them, but they are well protected in the periods of low oil prices. And we've experienced it in 2014, 2016, 2018, 2020. So that was the way. And since 2016, when uh, Russia uh, went uh, into this cooperation with OPEC, actually it became even more you know better manageable by the state so it was the state negotiating with saudi arabia and other opec members and it was the state telling the companies what to do it doesn't look like a pure market of course yeah but but it works and for the companies okay some of them have uh, have been disappointed because they've made previous upstream uh, greenfield investments and they couldn't monetize them immediately they had to wait for a couple of years they are basically monetizing all of them right now when well, they that... have opportunity to increase production but they're not yeah. getting so they're not getting that massive upside right now of the at least the yeah, companies because are not they getting are just replacing the losses of the previous period and they are just re- not only losses in the financial terms but also in the volumetric terms right. so when they had to shut in production in may 2020 they had to do it very very quickly And as I've mentioned, for the Russian geology, it is very destructive. You are losing a lot of reserves and you will, it is irreversible. You will never get them back. They are flooded. Forget about them. So for the companies, that was painful, but they were all realizing that it's the only way to survive because nobody wanted to see like $12 per barrel uh, cost uh, price for Brent. 
Yeah. So they, they or for Urals. So they went for it, uh, but now building up back. It, it is difficult. It is requiring well, much the, more effort. You mentioned the upstream. There's a million things to sort of unpack there because I think it's the, the when when the oil price collapse happened in 2020. You know where sort of Russia was at with Saudi Arabia, um, and then and then shutting in production. And I think obviously it's 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 more state led, so Russia can go to these companies and say you're shutting this in, and they do it. But you mentioned before the ability, they, especially in the context of not having enough gas for Europe and in Russia that the upstream investment wasn't done. So what has that looked over the course? I mean, I'm sure from 2014 sort of onward and the midst of sanctions and lower prices, you know, actually investing heavily in upstream for the future has been difficult. But that's what why I asked that is because the maintenance of production staying, you know, being able to push production to 11 million barrels a day, which looks relatively easy. Um, and I, I I would like to understand, like, is that, are you sort of hitting, is that sort of hitting a wall? Have they done little upstream investment? I know those smaller companies, you know, did contribute at least from 2014, I think it was a 2014 to 2016. You did have some smaller operators within Russia that sort of picked up tech and, and just ran with it and were able to help incrementally increase output. I imagine that sort of went by the wayside given everything with COVID and, you know, the state telling, you know, bigger producers to, ebb and flow their production given the OPEC plus agreements but that can you walk us through a little bit of the just that that you mentioned the lack of upstream investment but yet you've maintained production out the the production out so is it smaller chunks of upstream investment like how is it working out right now Mm -hmm. so look uh, actually even in 2014 2016 the companies kept investments and they were actually increasing them once again as i said this uh, this uh, exchange rate uh, game it allowed companies to feel quite safe they were protected by the tax system and by the exchange rate and for them basically there was no problem they had to uh, postpone or terminate some of the projects related to the sanctioned uh, areas of activities like deep water offshore or shale oil but uh given quite low oil prices anyway they were not uh, attractive yeah whether technologies are available or not it doesn't matter uh the only period when they've really dramatically reduced investments and by the way it was not only russian companies all the oil and gas companies all over the world have reduced their upstream investments in 2020 and that was reasonable when the market is collapsing everybody went for 25 to 30 percent uh capex uh, decrease yeah that was an average number the problem is that in russia given the nature of all the reservoirs given the locations where this oil is produced in the middle of nowhere <laughs> yeah uh actually if you reduce uh, investments, if you re- reduce capital expenditures by 30%, it will take a couple of years actually to build them back. It's not that fast. It's not th- uh, as flexible as in the Gulf, for example, or in the US, where you can start drilling and finish drilling in several weeks. Yeah, In Russia, it, yes. it takes much longer. Yeah, uh, and uh, um, therefore, I think, I mean, I'm sure that Russia will get back to the pre-crisis levels of oil production. So uh, 11.5 million barrels per day. It's still absolutely doable given these prices. I mean, another half a year, nine months, I think that will be achievable. 
And is that, you think that's relatively sustainable? Because I say this because a lot of people push back on me when I, you know, give a ton of, a lot of briefings and talk to a lot of folks. And I always, you know, explain U.S. production and Saudi production, Russian production. And, and, you know, a lot of old school oil guys always say, oh, well, you know, we've never, we've only had, you know, Russia and Saudi and the U.S. together producing 10, 11 million barrels per day for short periods of time. And so we've never, you know, they've only done it for short periods of time, so they can't do it for very long. And I, I always push back on that. And I thought, one, the U.S. has maintained well north of 10 million barrels per day for years now. Um, even post-COVID, we're 11 and a half million barrels a day with not a whole lot of effort. I mean, we're nearing, we're, we're not even at our pre-COVID rig levels and we're at 11 and a half million barrels a day. So, I mean, it's not like it's, it's working. We're maintaining stuff. But Russia and Saudi Arabia, it's funny to me because it's like, well, I always turn back and say, when did you ask Russia and Saudi Arabia to consistently produce north of 10 million barrels per day? And the demand side never did. It would break down when everybody was producing too much crude oil and there wasn't enough demand to support it and, and or the prices were too high and that was, you know, the demand wasn't supported those, those levels. And I think, look, we've seen Russia now consistently produce above 10. And if you're saying you can go to 11 and a half and hold it there, that's a pretty big deal. And I think that's something that a lot of folks and market analysts and oil analysts really don't appreciate is that I think that Saudi Arabia and Russia can eat easily produce north of 10 sustainably without, you know, without a, a ton of, yes, there'll be effort and everything, but it's not like it's going to kill them to produce those levels. Would you agree with that? Uh, it depends on the time frame, but if we are talking about, let's say, two, three, five, seven years, it's absolutely sustainable. <clears throat> right. Actually, as long as I am working in the oil and gas industry, I'm listening to these uh, outlooks that next year Russian oil output will draw, will start to reduce and it will go down. Uh, it is peaking now. Yeah, 10 years of picking or right, that's 20, a, years. That's God, a, 20 years that's of picking. <laughs> but that's my, and that's what I think in my whole career, you know, 10 years in this business, that's what I always heard too. It's peaking, will decline. That's not what oil production tends to do. And, and people are really nervous about when they look at OPEC and they look at, you know, the production within OPEC and they see the countries that, that haven't sort of sustained output and they say, okay, look, see, it's declining. And I said, okay, well, look at Saudi Arabia and look at UAE and look at Russia, look at the countries that can produce, they are producing. And, you know, it's like, it's like Iraq and the, um, the oil fires in Kuwait in, in the, with Saddam Hussein and everyone, I think it was Lupo Larissa, my old boss said, he remembers when they, when they had the fires and it was like, oh, it's going to take us years to put these out. They were put out within months and production resumed. And I think, you know, it's something I just point out is that production can be resilient. And over my career, production has over 10 years has tended to be more resilient to the upside, not saying it's going to like go grow. The ability to grow, I think, is difficult. But like you said, the maintenance of it and the peaking and just holding there um, is really important. And it's like peak production is it being able to hold the same as like peak demand. Yeah, you could peak at 100 million barrels a day, but declining for that demand is going to be really difficult to do. And I, those are these are the sticky points that I think people don't uh, really appreciate is that, you know, and if you have this arrangement, this OPEC plus, which is also fascinating, is that, you know, Russia has coordinated quite well. Um, I think it's interesting that I think production, yes, you took a hit in or Russia took a hit by reducing production in May of 2020, but then has been steadily able to increase output. Some of the exemptions have been given to Russia and Kazakhstan several months ago when there was some some hoo-ha and debating and everything going on within OPEC plus. But this this relationship that a lot of people said wasn't going to work has actually worked out pretty well. And these monthly meetings have worked out pretty well. But a part of that, isn't that because that Russia has uh 
gas production and condensate have been exempt um, from the cuts or were exempt from the beginning. And I think that's a, a big deal because in previous cuts, if you were cutting gas and condensate, that meant that because you had associated crude with it. This way, you can sort of just let the gas and condensate go and grow it to a degree and sort of offset some of that, the losses you would have from the crude side. Yeah, this is absolutely true. And in Russia, I mean, condensate is approximately 8% of the total liquids production. So that's a lot. And it that's is a, a lot. big deal. And uh, more and more, the new gas fields, uh, they have an increasing share of uh, condensate. Uh, they have a growing condensate factor. So it, it also plays a role. But basically, I think it, it's not uh, only the case of Russia. It's the case of the whole oil industry. If there is a clear sustainable demand, there will be supply. I mean, the human genius is able to develop new technologies, new methods. Fracking is a great example of how it works. Yeah, uh, and each year uh, the uh, extractable reserves of oil they are actually not decreasing because we find new ways how to get more from the ground. The key question is what will happen on the demand side. Absolutely. Yeah, and here we are coming to this most painful thing, which I've mentioned already, because if from the demand side. Like it was, by the way, with the gas market in Europe, there is a clear signal. We want to get rid of that. We are not planning to expand it. And then suddenly demand goes up. Here you are with a crisis because the producers, they were not prepared. You told them we don't want your goods. Yeah, they were not investing. And suddenly you say, we need more. Why are you not supplying us? Come on, we were not prepared for that. Okay. No, and that's the that's the real problem with this is that, and this is why, you know, it's not the people promoting this, I, I call it like 2021 became the year of the accelerated energy transition. And it's not even an energy transition. It's we want to be off this today. And so policymakers are telling the market and influencing the market, which I don't like. Um, so policymakers in Europe and the US now are influencing the market and saying, we don't want your crude oil and um, you're going to be penalized as a stock um, in your share price performance and how you sit in baskets because you are dirty and you produce a you produce oil and you produce fossil fuels and that's bad. However, demand hasn't changed a lick. In fact, it's gone up. And that has got to be the reckoning that people have. And the people have to realize that is that they need to be telling their policymakers, hey, we're still using it. And you can, nobody's addressed the demand side. So you can put all the wind and solar panels in you want, but until you, and if you force, and I just don't think it's going to work in America to tell people to stop driving pickup trucks um, because we're not going to stop driving them. So, you know, in other places in the world, you can do that. In China, they can, they can force people to, to change their, their, their standards. And in, in the UK and in Europe, they're looking to um, get rid of all, all the vehicles. There are major costs with this. So that's the piece that I, I'm really struggling with is that, like you say, is that the upstream side responds to demand. The problem is it's not demand now, it is policy. And so when you have Chevron and Exxon spending 10% of their CapEx on green and renewable stuff and ESG stuff, when oil prices are $85 a barrel, that's not a good investment to me. Um, that just doesn't... these. These things don't actually make money. I think the International Energy Agency showed a chart recently on Korean gas. It was a Korean wind and solar. And in the past four years, Korean wind and solar has not been profitable. It's been negative for four years in a row. 
when did, these aren't profitable businesses yet. Maybe they could be in the future. Absolutely. I mean, that was shale and, and lots of stuff. I'm not saying it couldn't be, but it's also reliable power. And there's a massive disconnect when you're saying of, you know, tell Europe saying we don't need the gas. Um, and then Russia's you know, not giving the gas or, or saying we're not going to invest in it. I mean, there's a there's plenty of geopolitics at play and power moves, but it does mean that, you know, the Europe put themselves in this position. And I think that's a problem that from a geopolitical standpoint of why Europe is, Europe's quiet right now. I mean, you're hearing the U.S. talk, you're hearing NATO talk, you're hearing Russia talk. Nobody's really talking from Europe, and probably because, you know, Andrew Merkel is out of it a little bit. But Europe has bent the knee to China, and they bent the knee to, to Russia to a large extent to say, we want this pipeline, we want Nord Stream. And you have to just realize there's there's geopolitical risk with that. I mean, you're beholden to a single country for most of your natural gas. There's a reason why China produces and consumes their own coal, because they have massive reserves. That's why their grid is still 70% coal. They have it. They're not reliable on anyone else. I mean, they get some gas from from Russia, which I'd like to talk about. But I mean, it's the, this energy security piece is, you know, lots of people used to talk about it. It's really way more relevant than people realize um, when we're... T- because we're tr- com- entities are trying, countries are trying to transition into renewables, energy security becomes a really critical piece of do you have reliable power for your people? And when you get it from different sources and you're trying to transition, it can get, we're seeing how messy it can actually get. Yeah, Tricia, you know, uh, two points that I wanted to add. So first of all, uh, maybe it sounds controversial, but I'm absolutely convinced that the whole success of the energy transition will first of all depend on how smart the policies will be with the fossil fuels. Because if they fail, they will actually destroy the whole idea. Yeah, and it is equally important for not only the new uh, energy sources, but also the old traditional fuels. They are very important part of this whole transitioning and decarbonization. Without uh, due respect and due care about this transition, we will be facing increasing vulnerability and volatility of these markets which, and this is the second point, is affecting the very, I mean, the whole idea of sustainability, yeah, it's about environment, yeah, climate issues, so on, it's about economy, so welfare, and if people are paying these crazy bills, forget about welfare, and it's about uh, social stability, and the whole case of Kazakhstan, which you've mentioned already, remember how it started? They've just increased prices for gas. And they've got massive protests uh, on the streets, which ended up nearly uh, with a putsch. Yeah? So it is um, very, I mean, currently we are all focusing on just one angle on climate. But actually, the other two are at least equally important. And if you think about the uh, 17 sustainability development goals, number one is poverty. And if we forget to care about poverty, I mean, everything else will not work. So, I mean, thinking in through this paradigm of sustainability, we have to take into account all these different factors. And we, 
it's a very difficult task. We need to be as smart as we've never been before as humankind. And I'm afraid that currently we are not uh, ready to proceed in a smart way with this whole transformation, unfortunately. So as an analyst, I would say I'm expecting very vulnerable period on the energy market uh, through the next decade. I completely agree. And I think that was extremely eloquently explained. I mean, and I, I told people from the very beginning in 2021 with the big stuff, the big push by the Biden administration is that if you are not bringing in experts for hydrocarbons, and I do actually say, I've told this to you before, I'm done calling it fossil fuels. I think it, fossil has a debt, has an old dead and negative connotation that is uh, in it, People want to say that they want to liken it to tobacco, and it's hydrocarbons. It is oil, natural gas, and 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 coal, um, and it's things that that we use every day. Um, and yes, they they emit emissions just like the cement industry and transport and all kinds of things they emit. But I increasingly am using the term hydrocarbons because I think that people have to realize is that hydrocarbons are you cannot if you like you said if you're actually transitioning they're an important component and that the only way a successful transition would work is if you had intelligent people understanding hydrocarbons in the mix and people always ask you know years ago why would i be in this business and i said well there're going to be about 12 people left in the world that understand geopolitics and hydrocarbons and you and i are one of them because we've decided to stick within the business and everyone's left and done renewables um and i think that it is policy driven. And the problem is policymakers have hijacked this uh, to bring in all the issues they want. They want to throw everything in the kitchen sink in with it. And it's actually, we're seeing it not work. If it was about decarbonizing and reducing emissions, then you would have, you would actually lean into natural gas because the quickest way you would reduce emissions in Asia and elsewhere is natural gas. And the fact that it's not being done tells you right there. That's because there's a hatred for, for, these hydrocarbons and fossil fuels, they don't, they don't want it. They want it out of the system immediately. And you're increasing, you're going to increase emissions in the short term. Um, because you're, if you're swapping out, um, natural gas for crude oil in your power plants in Europe and across the world, which we've seen since September of 2021, you're increasing emissions, you're burning crude oil for power. And that's a big deal. That's why a big factor of why oil prices went up in September. Um, why we've seen these because we swapped it out because of high natural gas prices. And the response by the International Energy Agency and other entities is that, well, we'll just have more renewable power and we'll fix this. And that's simply, you can say that all you want. It's not true. Um, and it's where we have this big problem, I think, and you get the environmental community who just says, well, yes, it's it's we have to have renewables um, and all be all. And then the hydrocarbon community who studies this and says, well, if this is what you're trying to achieve, then here's how we can do it. And the problem is there's not enough marrying. There, there's no bringing it together. I, I personally think from an analytical standpoint and the risk standpoint, I don't think the U.S. it's going to work in the U.S. Because like you said, in Kazakhstan, um, with these protests and then and everything that ensued in the U.S., I think we're already seeing it. Inflation, and I bring it up in a lot of podcasts and I mention it with you, but inflation, you know, we have energy price inflation, which is a really big deal, but we just have actual inflation among a everything else. And the Fed and European Central Bank and many other entities don't haven't wanted to admit that. They're slowly coming to it. Uh, the Bank of England had raised rates in December unexpectedly, regardless of why they had inflation. European Central Bank has basically made, clarified that we're, they're going to have sustained inflation with the energy transition because higher energy costs. But if you break down inflation within Europe, it's not just energy. It's 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 an, across all sectors like it is in the U.S. But we have an experience in my lifetime, high energy prices and inflation at these levels. And that has a profound impact on the consumer and the purchasing power and the world economy. And the World Bank is now calling out and saying, we're going to have slower growth because 
the global economy is feeling the impacts of inflation. And that's where I think it's really important to consider all this for the energy community and it, whether you're producing renewables or whatever it is, the costs, you know, especially for oil prices, I think they are getting a little hot in terms of from a consumer standpoint is that, you know, emerging con- emerging markets like China and Europe or China and India who buy this crude oil in, in, you know, 10 million barrels a day and 5 million barrels a day, 12, you know, that's a lot of crude oil. They can't sustain these prices. This, these are a little too hot to handle and they impact their economic growth and that inevitably impacts on, you know, consumption. So I think it's a big deal. And it's something that I know I've heard comments that, that Russia is cognizant of that, right? Is that they know that you don't want prices out of control. And I, I think OPEC to a degree is cognizant. I, I, I just get nervous that, that the sad, that prices get hot and people love them. You know, the Saudis love it. UAE loves it. And so it's like, well, let it run until you let it run up too high. And then it has to come back down. So it's this sort of balancing act of keeping them in a level that's stable, you know, 80 ish is good. But I think if you were to go to 90, you're going to feel it. it. It will pull back because the economy is just vulnerable. Yeah, I I agree. And in this respect, indeed, Russia's position uh, has been uh, since 2016, let's keep prices at 60s and let's not go to the north of that. And basically, the whole clash in February 2020 Remember, before, right yes. before COVID yes. really became global, uh, Russia said, "Okay, we've we've got to the five-year average level of uh, of the uh, stocks, and uh, or the prices are at sixties. So the mission completed. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, which I think was more or less uh, correct, if not for COVID. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, but with COVID, they had to go." Uh, down uh, with the quotas. Uh, But right now, indeed, I think producers have to be also very cautious, again, both oil and gas producers, not to uh, try to benefit too much from this very high part of the price cycle, because we know that this cycle will then go down. So uh, it's a game. It's always balancing. It involves many, many players. It involves this bloody geopolitics and a lot of politicians with their agenda. But uh, it is the blood of the world economy, whatever we think. That's the way how our world is working now and neglecting or ignoring these uh, issues, it it can lead to very destructive outcome. That's, uh, again, eloquently said. And I should end on that note, but I do have one last thing to ask you just to round this full circle. And if there's anything we missed, please please let me know. We can, we can jump into it. But the last thing is that I would like to, you know, I think this relationship with OPEC plus we've sort of addressed it is that it's, I wouldn't say it's super tight, but it's working. Um, and it'll work to the extent that they, they keep this sort of working, but the relationship with Russia and China, and I think there that's relevant, um, in it, certainly for the context of energy of, of, and there's been talks with on the South China morning post of, you know, whether or not this, this power of Siberia line would be, uh, basically increased or building another pipeline. Um, so we know that, you know, there's pipeline exports from Russia to China uh, in a pretty opaque, I don't think it's very transparent on pricing. I don't even know exactly what the volumes are. And then, you know, with with the some of the melting of the Arctic, Russia has been able to lean into the um, LNG exports and, you know, move ships around. And I think that's a big deal. And, you know, from a cost standpoint, doesn't seem probably that's that's not super profitable, but from a, from a, uh, 
a strategic standpoint, that's very smart for Russia to actually be pulling in gas and pulling into into China. But it's also not it's not a perfect marriage. I mean, Russia and China don't have these this perfect relationship. However, I mean, geopolitically, there are times where it can just work out. Now is kind of one of them of saying perceived weakness in the West. Okay, this Kazakhstan stuff. I think China has been relatively quiet. China has been overly quiet for two years. I am very, very concerned about China's economy. I'm on the record for it. I'm very concerned about what they're doing domestically to their own people. There's a lot of issues within China now. But this, uh, and that's why I think the relationship with Russia is is valid in what's the, the energy relationship with Russia, how much gas they're getting in and where that can sort of go um, is important, especially now that China is is increasing their imports of LNG because they want to make sure they have enough um, to, to withstand shocks and things like that. You know, these relations are very complicated. We've published, uh, for those who are interested, uh, a paper back in 2015 with Jim Henderson from Oxford Absolutely, Institute, yes. yep. uh, which is called Playing Chess with a Dragon, which is already like reflecting the nature of this relationship. It's definitely not marriage. Uh, it's rather very, very cautious relationship from both sides. You remember this proverb about snake and turtle, which mm-hmm. both suspect each other, but they are like doomed for this relationship. They naturally have no other chance uh, other than partnership. I wouldn't call it a strategic partnership as basically officially our leaders do. It is more of rhetorics, yeah. Uh, but uh, currently, in the in this world, in this historical period, it is mutually beneficial for both sides, and therefore they are building these uh, dual uh, bilateral relations in the areas where they can both benefit. Oil exports. I mean. You should remember that Russia is exporting to China now nearly 40% of all its export volumes. That's a lot. That's a huge so volume. This, that's a huge, that's yeah. huge. I mean, what is that? Four, it is, three million barrels per day? Yeah. Yeah, like that's that. a huge, yeah, roughly so, around so that. E, uh, East Siberia Pacific Ocean Pipeline, which was built just in 2009, yeah, now it is really uh, the key, uh, you know, flow of Russian oil, and it is growing every year. There were periods where Russia, uh, even I think a year ago, uh, when Russia had bigger share of the Chinese imports than Saudi Arabia. Yes, I saw that. So yeah, it's Russia huge... became really very important player in Asia Pacific, which was which Soviet Union never did. So mm-hmm. it is absolutely new uh, dimension, and it is expanding rather successfully. With natural gas, so far we are talking about uh, it's less than 10 billion cubic meters. So the power of Siberia is still building up, but they've speeded up uh, these supplies. And I think uh, uh, despite the fact that uh, gas fields in eastern Siberia are much more complicated, expensive and difficult than western Siberian gas fields, which go to Europe, but nevertheless, Gazprom succeeds in uh, uh, building up this production. They have this, again, very cautious discussion about expansion. So they are preparing feasibility study. They are looking at it. But remember, the whole negotiations on power of Siberia 1 
uh, took 10 years. So here I think and they China still are not is not in a hurry. Yeah, yeah China is not in a hurry. Russia is not in a hurry. But they both understand that they have, it's like an option. Right. It's yeah? nice diversification. They, they will realize it when it will be needed. Yeah, with LNG supplies, again, I wouldn't say that it's not commercially attractive. It is because the prices are high. Yeah, and it is uh, about building completely new logistics like ESPO. Yeah, but it is like a virtual pipeline Yeah, uh, with all this uh, transshipping and so on. Uh, so I think this uh, pivot to the east, it is taking place indeed. It is slow. It's not about strategic partnership. It's like business, nothing personal. Right. Yeah. But it works. Slowly, slowly, it's building up. And I think that here, uh, both China and Russia are extremely interested in having this relationship because both countries are facing also all these geopolitical threats and security of supplies, security of demand problems. So, yeah, it's ongoing. It's and it's it's unique in that I think um, obviously it's, it's not a perfect marriage because China is a consumer and Russia is this producer and China produces a ton of of coal. There's a I mean I always think it's fascinating if you want to under if people when they were talking about well China's decarbonizing and I thought if China wanted to decarbonize they'd have done it a long time ago and they haven't they haven't reduced their coal production they haven't reduced their coal consumption um, and so they and that's because they don't have the natural gas now they could have increased natural gas imports from Russia they could have increased it from the US over the years they could have increased it considerably from other parts of the world from Qatar from Australia they haven't and the reason they haven't is it's it's a security I mean it's not strategic for them uh, to do that so they're going to rely on coal they're going to produce wind and solar panels made from coal um, and they're going to export that to the world they're, yes they're going to do it some of it at home but it's a, it's a Action, you know, of, of what their 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 total portfolio is, and so I think it's a unique relationship. That's you have a producer consumer relationship, and then you have geopolitical opportunities where there's perceived weakness, and it, you sort of lean in. But I think, like you said, it's not a perfect marriage, and I I, I think it's interesting now where you know Russia's playing, you know, admittedly or openly you know, amassing troops on the border of Ukraine. Um, and China is being very, very quiet um, on a number of things. No one's, we're not seeing a lot of con people go in or out of the country. You know, the Olympics are coming up, whether or not they open up for a period of time and then basically kind of shut down, I think is, is realistic. Um, and so we just don't have a lot of line of sight on what's going on. And I think it's interesting to see, you know, if push came to shove, you know, would Russia and China work together militarily? And that's just never been clear to me. I do think it's the, you know, globally from a Western standpoint, you know, the sanctions that have continued to be on Russia have prevented Russia from, you know, uh, really exploring, um, I think a lot of probably more gas exploring more um, on the on the on the unconventional side, which clearly Russia has. Um, but so it's prevented Russia from exploring um, on the unconventionals. And it's also puts pushes Russia toward Asia, pushes Russia toward China. And something I'm, I think that the, the Western powers have, have done pro not to their benefit. They, they didn't probably perceive the risk uh, and understand, you know, where China was for the past 15 years and perceive them far more as a benevolent actor. And so they were sort of okay letting this Russia-China relationship build up. And in reality, to me, the the pulling of Russia back into the sort of the Western fold or that 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 friendship and and making sure that there's there's that that tie-in because Russia is not nearly as a I think from a threat perspective not nearly as big yes on the border of Ukraine it's a big deal but from from 
a U.S. and Western standpoint, it's not the same as China um, because of the economic weight, because of the, you know, the propaganda machine. And yes, Russia plays in that space, but not they don't have the propaganda, the media influence um, the same as, as China does. And I think those are two. I mean, for the Western powers, Russia and China, it's a very unique, unique ball that's that, as, as you pointed out, that's uh, it's not static and it's going to continue to move around. It's something that people are going to have to watch very, very closely. Well, at the same time, look, uh, China is much more fruitful uh, in terms of decarbonization. So each billion cubic meter of gas which goes to China results in a stronger reduction of carbon emissions than the one that goes to Europe. So here, I mean, we are living in one world. And uh, I mean, we still tend to think uh, with this paradigm of competing blocks uh, yeah, and confrontation and so on. And there are lots of reasons for that. And we see that uh, sanctions and mutual mistrust and everything is increasing, unfortunately. But I don't think that it's really a good way to proceed if we are talking about sustainability, if we are talking about a uh, long-term future for our kids. So here, uh, it's really very uh, complicated, but uh, the worst thing that can happen, and which is happening right now, is making energy which is, once again, blood of the economy, making it subject of all these geopolitical games and manipulations. So that, and that increase is the prices. Really yep. very disappointing. Uh, ab- absolutely. Um, well, with that, Tatiana, it has been awesome to have you on the podcast. Uh, we've been chatting for over an hour. You are, um, you're so smart and you understand this space so well and you describe it so well and, and you describe it so eloquently um, into, into a way that's really digestible for people. So I can imagine... Um, between the boards that you're on and the organizations you're affiliated with, that they really appreciate your insights and feedback. So we have appreciated it immensely. I've appreciated it. Um, I will absolutely have you back on the podcast. Um, and we will certainly, hopefully in this COVID, when this all subsides, we will meet up in Europe at some event. So I look forward to, we can jump on some panels and stuff together. So I'm sure we'll be working together in the future. Thank you so much. It has been really very exciting and, uh, you are doing great job in popularizing what is happening in the energy world. Thank you. Awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you.